You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. It's good to be here with you today. My name is Matt Nickus. I'm the lead pastor here at Kingsway, and uh, we're starting a new series called Blurred Vision. You'll understand more about what that means in a minute. A few years ago, I read a book, it was a marriage book, and at the end of the book, very convicting book, he talked about reverse engineering your marriage. For those of you who aren't engineers or don't understand that language, so some big concept kind of guy like me gets together with his team and says, hey, I've got this grandiose idea. What would happen if we, and you kind of have this vision, right? Then you get together and you kind of have to define, this is what reverse engineering is, you have to define that thing, that last thing, whatever it is, the product you want, and then you have to build the plan, the steps backwards to accomplish the plan. Does that make sense? This is what engineers try to do. Now, the thing is, you know ultimately the plan is gonna change. You aren't gonna be able to foresee every pitfall every problem, every bump in the road, but the goal is still to get to a certain destination. We've defined the win at the end of the day. So now all we're trying to do is put the right steps in place to take us where we're trying to go. That's reverse engineering. And this pastor was recommending that we reverse reverse engineer our marriage. So we're gonna try that for a second, but instead of marriage, I want you to reverse engineer your life, all right? I know this is like a really big question. I'm asking you to figure out in 30 seconds or less. Don't worry, you'll have more time throughout this series. But here's what I want you to do for just a moment. I want you to imagine with me that you're lying on your deathbed. You're much, much older. I don't know how old you are now, so let's just say you've lived a full life and you're ready to go, all right? Whatever that means. You're completely lucid. You're mentally with it. You've not slipped at all. You completely remember your life and whatever the best case scenario is, you can paint it is. The only downside is you've been given a two-week sentence. You know the exact day or hour you're going to go. Now, you're living those last few weeks before that last day and hour comes. I know, nobody knows the day or the hour. Anyway, however, however, now you're looking back over your life. In that moment, what are the three to five things that you want to be said about you? What are those three to five things that as you're living your life, looking back, you're going, man, this, 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 this. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to pick just one thing, just one thing. You're going to describe that moment. You know, it might be a person that's there. Your dog jumped up on the bed with you because everybody knows you want that in the last moment. Or whatever it is, whatever that thing is or that person is, that experience is, or whatever it is. And I just want you to share it with somebody sitting next to you. Now, you may look at them and go, I don't know. I've given 30 seconds to think about this. That's fine. I want you to do that on three. Ready? One, two, three, Go. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. If you're single and they don't have a ring, exchange phone numbers. Well, it's dying down, so you must have solved the problem. All right. That was an extremely awkward thing if that wasn't your spouse. And it might have been more awkward if it was. Well, honey, I've been meaning to tell you. Uh, (laughs) So here's the question. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand. This is rhetorical. Just think about it for yourself. How many of you could say that you're on the right track to getting what it is you really want on that last day? 
Now, for some of you, I hope the answer is yes. I hope because we've talked about these things before that maybe there's something like that coming. Maybe for some of you, there's some angst because in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. And for some of you, maybe there's confusion. Nobody's ever told you how to get there. Nobody's ever asked you these kinds of questions and made you sit down and think about them, write them out. By the way, it's powerful to write this out on a piece of paper. I have done this at different points in my life. I have clearly defined what it is I want my life to be marked by. This is why I continue to drive around an old beater uh, Ford Focus wagon, even though it gets in a car accident and it got totaled recently, I bought it back and, and, and got it fixed because it's not in my top five priorities when I get to that last day. I hate driving it, but I really don't care enough in light of the bigger things. This is why I'm here without my hair cut because to me, everybody at the parent seminar knows what I'm talking about. To me, this is a bigger deal. There are bigger things going on in my life than my hair or other things. But I've made those decisions in my life. So I live my life out of those predetermined conclusions. Now, with that being said, if there's a disconnect, if there's some sort of offness between where you want to be and where you are, the question is for all of us, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from doing that? And the answer is actually quite simple. You ready? It's called Fear. Fear is the one thing that prevents us from doing it. It might be fear of discomfort. It might be fear of a lack of control. It might be fear of pain. It might be fear of loss. It might be fear of failure. It might be you've tried it, and now you're living in the mess of it, and there's just this constant anxiety about it. But guess what? Anxiety is like diet fear. Fear is this driving force that keeps us, prevents us from stepping into the life that we maybe should live. A guy wrote a book, his name is Donald Miller, and I, I gotta be honest, I don't agree with everything Donald says theologically, so if you pick up his books, I just wanna put a big red flag on him. I will say this, though, one of my favorite books Donald wrote is a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Now, the point of this book, he barely, barely talks about God at all. He references him at just kind of a big picture level. But the point of this book is, it's, try to stick with Don's story. Don wrote a book. His first book that was really famous was a book called Blue Like Jazz. It was all about God and spirituality and faith, kind of exploring these issues from a, um, I don't know, a kid who didn't really want to grow up and is now in his 20s and doesn't have a lot of friends or a girlfriend and doesn't know where he wants to go in life. So he writes that book, and it sells a lot of cop- copies, essentially because there were a lot of people like him in America. And what happened was some movie producers found that book and came to Don and said, man, this book is really, really good. We want to write a movie about your life. So they sat down and started making a movie about his life. But what they found out very quickly is the real Don Miller was actually really quite boring. His life was not exciting at all. And in essence, who wants to go to a movie, buy a Netflix or, you know, watch a TV show or read a book about somebody who gets up, shaves, takes a shower, changes clothes, goes to work, comes home, eats dinner, turns on the TV, goes to bed, and starts over the next day. You're like, why would I want to watch that movie? I live that movie. (laughs) This is not exciting at all. So Donald started studying storytelling. And in essence, he discovered that the reason we get drawn into certain stories, I mean, those life-changing kinds of stories, those kinds of stories that move us, they stir us, they do something in us. And the reason we love them is because there's a hero. And the hero has to overcome a challenge. And if the hero doesn't step into the challenge, there's no story. And the problem for most of us is the challenge... It's hard, it's scary, it's painful. 
So we naturally seek comfort in our lives, but the more we seek comfort in our lives, the more we avoid living the story that's laid out for us. In fact, in his book, Donald says this, Robert McKee says humans naturally seek comfort and stability. Without an inciting incident that disrupts their comfort, they won't enter into a story. They have to get fired from their job or be forced to sign up for a marathon. A ring has to be purchased. A home has to be sold. The character has to jump into the story, into the discomfort and the fear. Otherwise, the story will never happen. This would explain why some of you single men in here have been dating the same girl forever. And you will not ask her to marry you because you're afraid, what if it doesn't work? By the way, sometimes it's the other way around. Some of you girls have been putting up all the signs. You're not ready. The list goes on and on and on. It's why some of you play it safe in your uh, 401k. Not saying you shouldn't. It's why some of you moved where you moved, took the job you took. It's why some of you dress the way you dress. Some of you are risk takers. You're entrepreneurs by nature. And so for you, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not me. I'm just going to throw all caution to the wind. I'm leaving the best story ever. It's just that everybody in my life is burned out and miserable. We need to talk about that on another message. But for this message, what I really want you to do is see that if you want to live the life that you want to live, the one that you dream about living, then you need to understand some of the pieces necessary to getting there one day. Now, I'm going to guess, if I could take one word and summarize what you describe on that last day, I could summarize all of it with this one word. Love. Am I right? That on that last day, whenever it was, you had those couple weeks, what you envision the most is your family, your friends gathering around you and telling stories about the experiences that you had together, about those you had given your life to, poured your life into, sacrificed to serve, coming to you to tell you what a difference you made in them and in the world. Is that right? My guess is on that last day, you're not gonna talk about your favorite gun you bought. You're probably not gonna talk about your favorite car. You might tell stories about the fun you had in the car, but my guess is the car itself won't mean much at that point. You won't talk about your home and how much you spent on the home. You're probably not envisioning dying in a very big, large, expensive bed with really nice satin sheets. I mean, don't get me wrong, it'd be nice to sleep in it. But my guess is on your last day, when you think about those three to five things you want to reverse engineer your life into, it's not that. And yet, aren't those the things that sidetrack us along the way to getting to where we really want to be? Because it's easier to chase something small than to put off for something big. Now, what I want to do is I want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about this very subject and just look and study the only person who ever lived their life the right way, and his name is Jesus. So let's take a look real quick. This will be 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. Not John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. It says this. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now what John is trying to do, and if you go read 1 John, he's been trying to build this entire theme of love in the book of 1 John. God is love, therefore we should be love. That's kind of his argument. And then he says, and if you really want to know what love looks like, don't just make it up in your own head. Don't just take it from Hollywood, especially not right now with all the junk going on in Hollywood. 
Instead, study the only person who's really ever loved, Jesus. And what did he do to love? Sacrifice. This is never popular to hear because what we want, let's just be honest, okay? Nobody else is in the room but us, right? It's just me and you. What we really want is everybody else to love us. What we really want is everybody else to sacrifice for us. When we're driving down the road, we want everybody to get out of our way. When it's time to get our food, we want them to serve us first. And we don't say that because we know it sounds crude and rude. But it's what we're thinking. We want everybody else to make our lives easier and better. But here's the thing. God actually envisioned a world where everybody would live that way. It's just that you and I would too. We would actually live in such a self-giving, sacrificial, not self-centered way that we would live our lives for the benefit and the glory of others. And when we were really struggling to get it done, we'd always have an example to turn to and say, how do we make it through this? What did Jesus do? I love uh, Bob Goff. You guys have ever heard of this book, Love Does? How many of you read that? It's a great read, great read. And the book, Love Does, Bob Goff says this, but the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. Not not presence like Christmas presents, presence like you being there. It's a love that operates more like a sign language than being spoken outright. Makes sense, right? And when we talk about the love of God, we're always looking at Jesus. And he says at one point, <coughs> excuse me, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It sounds almost like a haiku. I've never actually put it in there to see if it works. But it sounds like this poem, right? I mean, here I am walking the earth, the earth that I created with the people I created. And the foxes I created, they have a place to sleep. The birds that I created, they have a place to call home. But here I am, and I use rocks and dirt That's it. And part of what Jesus is saying is, notice when I came into the world to show you what love looks like, it required a bit of discomfort. It required a bit of sacrifice. It goes on in John, 1 John 3, verse 17. He says this. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Wait a minute. I want to be really clear. We here at Kingsway believed we are saved by grace through what? Some of you are like, yes. It's speaking in tongues, and it means faith. We are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. But realize the biblical writers all draw this direct connect between our actions and our faith. That's why James writes, If you show me your faith by what you say, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And if you don't have actions to back up your faith, then your faith is dead. What good is a dead faith? It's essentially what John is saying here. If you have enough money to live well, and you see a brother or sister in need, but you show no compassion, how how could I, as as a leader in the church, look at you and honestly say, God's love is in you? And the reason that John is saying this is because it was John's perspective. By the way, did you know John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved? 
Go read the book of John, the gospel of John. John wrote it. He never really tells us it's himself. Throughout the whole book, you kind of have to piece together who he is, but he keeps referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And then he said, and how will you know that I loved God? I'll show it by my actions. He goes on, verse 18, verse 18. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. I think you just said that. Yes. So when somebody repeats himself, what are they trying to do? Make sure you get the point. That's why your parents, right, said the same thing over and over and over again because repetition is the key to retention. I think I've said that before, haven't I? What's the key to retention? Repetition. Very good. You're getting it. All right. Our actions, verse 19, will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Hmm, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, we'll talk more about it in a moment. What, part of what John is trying to say is John is trying to say, okay, I want you to now expand this question that Matt asked you. That if John were here, that's what he would say. I want you now not to look at the last two or three weeks of your life and you're on your deathbed and whatever it is that's coming, it's coming in a few weeks. You know the day and the hour and your family and friends are coming. I now want you to go just moments beyond that last day. I want you to now go to the moment where you've opened your eyes and you're in that other reality. Exactly how that works, I have no idea. But you are now standing in the presence of Almighty God. He's wrapped in glorious light and colorful rainbow. There's booming sound coming from him, according to Revelation. There are angelic beings all around, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in that moment, you realize just how small you are, just how short your life was. You are standing in the presence of power and glory and majesty. And in that moment, how are you going to feel? Will you have confidence as you stand before God on that day? Confidence not rested in your ability to be good. Confidence rested in the fact that you were good. First, because Jesus changed you from death to life, from lost to found, from unsaved to saved, from slave to redeemed. And then confident because your life followed in the footsteps of your Savior. If you don't have confidence on that day, there's a reason, John tells us. John says right there in those very verses, I just don't have it for you. He says, you know what? Perfect love, perfect love casts out all fear. If you still have fear, if you're still afraid on that day, the reason you're afraid it's because you have not come to the full experience of his love. So if you put all of 1 John together, he begins in chapter 1 and he says, I'll tell you what, I want you to walk in the light as he is in the light. Don't hide in darkness and in shadows. Make sure that your actions actually follow through on what you profess and claim to believe. And what's going on in John's day is there are heretics, false teachers going around saying, it doesn't matter how you live. It only matters what you know. And John's writing his whole book to say, no, that's not true. It matters a ton how you live because how you live reveals what you believe. How you live displays your heart, your faith, your hope for the world to see. What John is really trying to do is not create anxiety. What John is really trying to do 
is to create that moment that Donald Miller talked about, the, what he calls an inciting incident. In storytelling, the inciting incident is the thing that happens that moves the hero into his story. I'm a huge Braveheart fan. All the men in the room, give me an amen. Yeah, um, Tyler, one of the guys on staff, he, he hates the movie. I'd just like to say he's under 30. Doesn't mean all people under 30 don't know what they're talking about, but Tyler doesn't. I love you, Tyler. I don't know where you are in the room. But in all, what I mean by that is he was like a baby when the movie came out, so he just didn't know. Anyway, so think about Braveheart for a minute. There's this, if you've seen the movie, so you've got this hero, William Wallace, and he's been challenged by his friends to go fight England and bring freedom, right? And his first response is, no, why would I want to get mixed up in that? This isn't my story. I don't even really care. I just want to have a family and live a peaceful life. And then something dramatic happened. Then they showed up, they took his wife, and they killed her. And all of a sudden, we have an inciting incident. We have a moment where the hero has to choose. Am I now going to step into the conflict, or am I going to run away for the rest of my life? What John wants to do in this book is the very thing I want to do for you today. I want to annoy you just enough that when you walk out of here today, you've got to wrestle with God. You've got to wrestle with your life. You've got to think about the things between here and there. The moments you have left, whether they're hours or weeks or years, I don't know. But what will happen is you won't be able to stay the same. There'll be this holy discontent about you, the world you see around you, and what you're supposed to do as a result of it because I want you on that day to stand before your father in heaven proud of what he did in you and I want you to hear these glorious words we hear in Matthew 25 well done good and faithful servant well done you were faithful with the things that I gave you Come and enter into your master's happiness. Because he who is faithful with a few things, I know I could put in charge of many more things. Well done. But at the end of the day, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear, honestly, that's what I want to hear from my kids. That's what I want to hear from my spouse. That's what I want to hear from my church. Whenever that day comes and I'm lying on that last, bed, last day on my deathbed, I want the people around me who know me the best to say, well done. This is a life well lived. Well done. Good job. Now go home. And I want to get the other side of that last breath. I want to say for my father. I want to hear him say, good job. Well done. So proud of you. You were so faithful to the end. Good job. And that's what I want for you. So here's the question. How do you get there, right? Well, it's this. When you know where you want to be forever, it changes how you live today. When you, know where you, when you know where you want to be forever, it'll change how you live today. So I want to give you three steps real quick to a far-sighted view of life. Three steps to a far-sighted view of life. Step number one, you ready? Figure out where you want to spend eternity. It's pretty simple, right? Step number one, figure out where you want to be forever, and then we'll go from there. But step number one, you got to figure it out. So when I was a young man, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told this story publicly or not. So I was a, a pretty good athlete. In fact, baseball, I started playing in kindergarten, and uh, I played it all the way through. And I was always one of the best hitters, the best fielders on the team. I was just kind of naturally, I thought, a kid. And I'll never forget, I turned right around um, 10 or 12 years old, somewhere in that ballpark. And I remember I couldn't hit a lick. 
Now, we had kind of progressed. We went from coach pitch to, you know, kids pitching, and kids were getting better. And so I just naturally assumed kids were learning how to throw curveballs and other things that I hadn't learned how to hit yet. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why I wasn't doing as well as I had previously done. So my dad took me to a batting cage and was just helping me kind of work through some stuff. And I'm standing in there, and these balls are coming flying at me. So I'm standing, like, way away from the plate. My dad's like, Matt, you got to step up. You're not going to be able to hit anything from back there. So I step up, and the next ball that comes out whacks me right in the lip. I mean, huge fat lip. My dad's like, back up, back up. <laughs> so we get in the car. My dad's mad. Like, he's blaming the machine. He's going off on people who run the store, blah, blah, blah. When everything finally calms down, I mean, my lip was so fat. Oh, it hurt so bad. I was bleeding everywhere. And uh, I remember my dad saying, Matt, why didn't you move out of the way? Even though you saw it coming and the machine was off. I said, Dad, I didn't see it until it was right there. He said, what do you mean you didn't see it? I was like, I literally couldn't see it until it was right there. Well, about a month later, um, my parents got called in on a parent-teacher conference, and um, they said, you know, Matt has this problem with talking. <laughs> yeah? You know, sometimes a weakness is a strength, I'm just saying. Anyway, and uh, so my parents sat me down with the teacher, and they're talking through it, and I said, well, I'm having a hard time paying attention. Not surprising to anybody. And they said, well, why? And I said, well, I can't see the board. I said, what do you mean you can't see the board? I said, I literally can't read the board. It's like it's easy to be disengaged when you really don't know what's going on. And my parents said, I think it's time to get his eyes checked. Now, the reason my parents didn't get my eyes checked is because it was about 10 months earlier, they got my eyes checked, and I had 15-20 vision. You would expect that in that short amount of time, it wouldn't have changed that dramatically, but it did. I had an astigmatism, and my eyes changed dramatically, and I was pretty significantly nearsighted. So next thing we knew, I had to go get some glasses and then contacts and all this stuff. Now, this is what was crazy. Every time I would take my glasses off, I couldn't see a lick. I really couldn't see. I mean, like, I could, when I learned to drive, you kind of learn to squint, you know, you kind of make out that speed limit sign and kind of see the lines of the road. It was not safe. I did it a few times. It was totally not safe. And see, life is the same way. I don't know if you know that. See, if you're extremely nearsighted and all you're thinking about in life is really what is in front of you, then consequently what you will do is live your life for the things that are in front of you, the next shiniest, prettiest, funnest looking thing. Have you noticed this? But it sidetracks you from where you ultimately want to go, which is why what I want you to first do is decide where you want to spend eternity. If you had complete sight, if you could see what heaven might look like then you start to get a vision for that place. Here's what uh, Paul says in Colossians. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Notice it's not a pipe dream. It's not a maybe, what if, something out there one day. This is a reality. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. What's Paul trying to do here? Paul is trying to raise your vision from a very nearsighted, I can't really see anything anymore, to realize when that day comes, and Christ is revealed to you in his eternal glory, <laughs> you're gonna share in all of God's glory. See, throughout the scriptures, God's asking you to make an exchange. 
What we're doing when we come to faith in Christ, and as those three people did today, we go into the waters of baptism, we come up out of the waters, we're leaving behind the old self, the old ways, the old desires. Christ, make no mistake, Christ is making an exchange. You take my life, I'll take yours. You take my hope, I'll take your lack of hope and despair. You take my life, I'll take your darkness. You take my joy, I'll take your sorrow. So that on the cross, Jesus literally bore all of our sin and all of our shame that we might be alive in him. But we're not just alive in him for eternity starting when we die. We are alive in him today from the moment we receive him. We are him on this earth. Which is why the second step to having a far-sighted view of God is simply this. Let's study what the values of that place are. If you want to live your life here in light of the place where you want to be forever, then start to study what does that place value? You might say, what does the king of that place, the ruler of that place value? And then how do I live my life here appropriately in light of that? I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named Hugh Hefner. He recently passed away. And honestly, true story, I was sad that day. My heart broke for Hugh Hefner. There's literally no sign, no sign of a faith in Christ at all. I have no idea what he said or did in those last few moments of his life, but I have the entire script of his life to show me something. Now, I'm not standing here condemning, except for what happened that day was every news article it seemed like I read, every radio station I listened to, I couldn't escape it, it seemed like. Everybody was talking about it, and the way they were talking about it made my heart even more sad. In fact, here on a local sports news station, and I quote, they were talking about it, and they said, if you die and go to heaven after you lived 91 years of heaven on earth, where do you go? I won't say the name of that radio program. Perhaps you were listening to it too that day. But my heart went even sadder. All day long, I'd listen to sport, different sports radio stations talking about if you could trade lives with any person in the world, isn't Hugh Hefner the guy you would trade lives with? And to which I thought, if your view then of life is to enjoy the 91 years to the fullest of your physical capacity, perhaps. But I'm gonna guess if you're there on that last moment right after that, no, you wouldn't trade it for anything. Because all the things that Hugh Hefner experienced here, what he gave up was eternal joy there. The same program went on to say this, of all the lives that are on the earth, his was the best. And every room, woman in the room, I think just like threw up in their mouth a little bit. But this is what so many of the people who live in the world that you and I live in say about the world that we live in, right? And this is why I'm telling you this. You live in a world that has different values than eternity. You live in a world that has placed meaning and purpose in a place where it can never be found. 
And so there's this endless search for more. How many women, Hugh, will ever be enough? How big a mansion do you have to have? How many parties? How many cars? How many silk robes? When will you have finally ever arrived at that thing you're seeking and it finally actually left you feeling fulfilled? Because I'm telling you, when Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come to give life and to give it to the fullest, that you will not find life anywhere else apart from him. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 16, we learn a little bit about what that life values. Jesus says this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. It's the next verse, the one we don't talk about very much. Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn the world. Jesus came the first time to save the world. And he did that primarily through what? Giving sacrificially of himself. He gave up heaven where he's worshiped as God. He gave up heaven where he lived as king. And he came down here. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And this is such a powerful example for us. If we want to get to the place that we say we want to get to, having our lives filled with love, filled with the relationships, filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with the activity of God, then we must get to the place where we are giving sacrificially of ourselves to the world, though it may spit in our face and hurt us. And that is so hard to do. Because we're constantly distracted by the realities shiny new things that have no power to fulfill. Bob Goff says this and love does. That's what love does. It pursues blindly, unflinchingly, and without end. When you go after something you love, you'll do anything it takes to get it, even if it costs everything. All right, step three. It's our last step. Step three, to having a far-sighted view of life. Set your highest values to match that place. So step one, we're gonna figure out where we wanna spend eternity. Step two, we're gonna study what that place values. And step three, we're gonna change our values to match what that place values. And that sounds so unbelievably easy to do, and yet it's extremely difficult, am I right? I mean, come on, when you're talking about everyday life, it is so difficult to do that, especially when your spouse has is, is been difficult to get along with because they're always the problem. <laughs> especially when, <clears throat> or at least in my marriage, that's my wife's problem, is her spouse. Anyway, uh, it's so unbelievably difficult to do when you get a little raise, right? And you get the little raise and you're like, <clears throat> I know what I'm gonna do with this extra money. I'm gonna buy a new thing that I've been really wanting. Not needing, but wanting. Even though you've accumulated debt from all the other things that you really wanted, didn't need, I'm not gonna put it down on the debt. I'm gonna buy more stuff, right? This is what we all tend to do. It's called um, the law of the bigger yes. 
The law of the bigger yes. You can write that one down, tattoo it on your arm. The law of the bigger yes. And the law of the bigger yes is simply this. I'm willing to sacrifice today in order to get something bigger and more important in the future. The law of the bigger yes. So the bigger yes is in the future. The little small yes is today. The hard part for me is I can't get the yes today if I want that. This will compromise on that. So I'm gonna say no to this so that I can say yes to that, but I don't know what the, that is until I study it and look at it and think backwards about it. So when we look at love through the lens of God and we start to say, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love like God? Then we know this, to love like God means to sacrifice our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength to redeem the world that God has made. That's it in a nutshell. Love is defined by God as to sacrifice our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength to redeem the world that God has made. That's why he sent his one and only son. It's why you're sitting here today. Either because somewhere along the way you believed that message or because you're here pursuing it because somebody invited you into that message. But it's why we're here today. That's why we exist throughout the week. Listen, this is why you have the job you have, so that you can rub shoulders with people and introduce them to this man called Jesus, so you can make money that you can invest in God and in his kingdom for the purpose of advancing it to the ends of the earth. This is why 500, over 500 of you signed up to go and give up a week of your lives to go on a mission trip next year. It's unbelievable. I've never heard of a church having that happen. This is why yesterday, uh, roughly 200 people, I don't know the exact number, showed up with their kids, about 150 of them, in order to hear about how do we parent our kids in this world because we don't want to value the things the world values. This is why so many of you invited your friends. We had roughly 2,500 people come to a trunk or treat because you said, I don't want to put value in the things that the world values, but I still want to gather with the people that I love and introduce my neighbors to Christ. I mean, there's so many examples of ways that we've done this around here, and the opportunities in front of us are not done yet. My friend on staff, Ben Bullard, one of my good friends, uh, he lives out in Plainfield, and his address and cell phone number is um, Social Security. I'm just kidding. I won't do that too. He's probably in here going, I will kill you. He lives out in kind of the, what you might call the uh, west part of Plainfield. And uh, he says, Matt, every day I look and there's new properties going up for sale, there's new businesses. He's talked to a couple developers. Ben's a real visionary kind of guy if you've ever known Ben. And he says, Matt, um, there are, I can't remember what he said. No, I think he said two, two to 5,000 homes going in in West Plainfield predicted over the next 10 years possibly a little further than that. And you just extrapolate it out, you know, 2.5 kids, whatever that number is. Um, so what's that equal in terms of people? Somewhere between five and 20,000 people just moving to West Plainfield over the next 10 years. I'd say what, every pastor in this community knows that data point. I've talked to five different pastors in the last year over lunch or coffee, and all of them are saying, we've got to get to West Plainfield. Why? Because everybody knows there's going to be a huge harvest of people. Huge harvest. What about if you go out past Danville? Not a lot of churches out there. 
You know, everybody looks at the churches around here and says, but there's churches everywhere. There are, but did you know that within a four and a half mile radius of where you're sitting right now, there are roughly 14,000 people who do not have a church home. That's by their own numbers. Who knows how many more thousands say they have a church home but never show up at home. And I wonder if we valued the things that God valued the most, what sacrifices might we make to reach them? the gospel. The only thing preventing us really from doing it is the law of the bigger yes. Will we buy into the bigger yes rather than the smaller yes? Andy Stanley in his excellent book, The Principle of the Path, he says this. Somewhere along the way we begin selling ourselves on what we want to do rather than what we ought to do. We listen to ourselves until we believe our own lies. And then we opt for happiness. I read that quote. It's a phenomenal book. Highly recommend the book. And I was so convicted because I went, that's me. I am so easily and quickly trading off the things that I value most, the things that God values most for the next shiniest thing. And I've always got some great argument about why I needed it. In fact, I'm really good at selling my wife on those things. But when I'm honest with myself and with God and with others, it didn't help me one bit. I'm gonna read one more verse to you and we're gonna wrap up. First John, chapter three. I want you to see where John goes in his argument. Verse 20. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. Can I just say it real quick? Can we trust our feelings? Some of you are like, I don't know. According to John, no, you can't. Because you may stand before God feeling guilty because you look back over your life and this is the guilt trip. This is the American church today. Like we guilt trip everybody into everything. No, 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 no. He's saying, look, even if you still feel guilty, God's bigger than your feelings and he knows everything. He knows whether your life aligned with his will. He knows whether you listened and were soft to his voice. He knows when he spoke, did you respond? He knows, were you open to him leading and moving and stirring in you? He knows your failures. He knows your weaknesses. He knows when you blew it, and he knows when you got it right. And he's bigger, John says, than all those things. Verse 21, dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we could come to God with what? Bold confidence. I love that. Verse 22. And we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. It's one of my favorite little chunks of scripture in the whole Bible. You know why? Because in a nutshell, what John just said, whatever you need, you come to your heavenly father and you boldly, you boldly request it. And you boldly lay it out there. And you're going to trust that God knows best. So God can have more than one answer, can't he? He might say yes. He might say no. He might say wait. He might say I've got a, you know, something better in mind. I'm going to make this exchange. I know what you're asking me, but it's not the right thing. So I'm going to give you the right thing instead. Because God does that. But when you are confident in God and who he is, then you can come and ask. Why am I saying all that? Because what we're beginning today is a four-week journey. And you may not have known it, you may have picked up on hints, but this journey is really the journey of what I call generosity, the journey of generosity. And what I want you to begin to do is not to skip out on the next three weeks, now that you know. 
What I want you to do is to open your heart and to be responsive to whatever God says to you over the next three weeks. In fact, if there's any series we do between now and December, I want you to commit to being there for it. That's the series. I want you to think, you know what? I'm gonna be here because Matt's gonna speak some really hard truths, but some clarifying ones are gonna change the way I live, the way I see this world. And it all begins with this bold ask. This bold ask. Here's the ask. You ready? Just pray it. Close your eyes with me. Father, in heaven, help me right here, right now. To trust you. And help me right here, right now, to follow that trust with actions. And Father, help me right here, right now. to make the first action of my life, to be to love sacrificially like Jesus loved me. And Father, as I open up my hands to you, help me to let go of holding so tightly to the things that I think I need things that I really want. My selfish dreams and plans and ambitions that do nothing to touch the lives of the people that you were willing to die for. Father, I pray, would you stir in me a desire first to be generous in a way that reflects your love for me, in a way that reflects your provision and trust and your provision for me. God, would you give me the resources to do it? Father, I wanna follow you in faith. I want to be faithful to what you put in front of me. I wanna live like Jesus here on this earth, but I'm afraid if I'm generous, God, if I give sacrificially, am I gonna be okay? So God, I need you right here, right now, to resolve this in my heart. And I'm asking you boldly, Father, to give me all that I need to do all you have planned for me. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.